Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Rob Mills, who's the Global CEO and Director at uh, Turnstile, his new sports and entertainment measurement company. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is an extension of what you've been doing for the past, uh, what, 15 years? Or yes, yeah, it'd be 15 years, yeah. We, um, from a Gemba perspective, and, and Gemba is the, is the owner of Turnstile, um, constantly sort of looking at trying to value sponsorships in, in a more accurate and sophisticated way. And, and that was sort of the genesis for Turnstile about, um, about three and a half years ago when we started the product development for it. Well, it's interesting because one of the areas that... Uh, amazes me how much time and effort people put into their paid media and looking at the value and the placement and the engagement. But uh, when it comes to sponsorships, it's still a bit of the Wild West, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that example is exactly what we talk about is the amount of scrutiny that goes on media, yet with sponsorship you've got you know three- to five-year deals of millions of dollars and pounds, yet the level of sophistication around valuing those is still relatively low and... As an industry, I think we're at a tipping point where we need to resolve that because the, the level of scrutiny is going up on all marketing metrics and sponsorship is going to be increasingly left behind if, if we don't evolve as an industry. Well, it's sort of you know, a little bit of uh, sponsorship is the fact that it's aligned itself for a long time with the same methodology public relations or media relations had, yeah. which is this reliance on media equivalency. Yeah. You know, it's true, isn't it, that uh, pretty much sponsorship deals, if anyone tried to uh, value them, they'd look at, well, how much exposure are we going to get and, and what's the equivalent of that in, uh, in media costs, right? Yeah, and I think, I think it's become a massive trap for the industry because I think sponsorship is so much more than just exposure and it's really pigeonholed what sponsorship can do. And I think, you know, in a lot of the thinking around equivalencies is, is fundamentally flawed as it relates to actually being able to accurately measure the price of the sponsorship. Mm. Um, I mean, I would argue that equivalencies don't give you an ROI um, and they don't give you a, a price benchmark. So it's sort of questionable about what the value of those is. But as it relates to actually helping understand what you should pay for a sponsorship, there's no real connection between a media equivalency and actual contract prices. Mm. Well, I think it was uh, because media equivalencies in both PR and sponsorship have this mythical multiplier. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. the actual cost of the equivalent media. Yeah. And even that's flawed. But then it was suddenly multiplied <laughs> by three or four or three point six seven or yeah, yeah. You know, some number that someone seemed to have come up with. So yeah. that the value, this supposed value in quotes, uh, was so much bigger than the contract value. Yeah, and I think that word value it gets thrown around sort of interchangeably between ROIs, equivalencies, and price. And I think you're right. I mean, my view is that you know, when I put my old client hat back on is. I have a price to buy the media and a price to buy the sponsorship and I have a, an ROI or a value equation which depends on my objectives. I don't really need anything in the middle between those two things. What, what am I paying for it and what's it doing for me? Um, anything else in the, in the middle is probably a bit of noise, I think. Uh, and then uh, again, the, the challenge of the sponsorship industry is that when it defines itself just on equivalencies and exposure, it actually leaves 
a lot of value on the table and a lot of brands actually don't necessarily want the logo exposure anymore. They actually want the rights to engage with these communities. Mm. Uh, and as an industry, sponsorship hasn't been able to price that and actually benchmark that. Well, you've touched on something then and I want you to go back. I know it's last century, <laughs> last millennium, right. in fact. scary. That uh, you were the brand director for a sporting brand. Yes. Um, what is it that, you know, if you're going to choose a sponsorship and you're going to enter into a sponsorship with a, a, you know, product, a yeah. property owner, what is it about that compared to, say, advertising? Because that's what media equivalency mm-hmm. seems to infer, mm-hmm. that the two are virtually equal. Yeah. I, I just think they're completely different and it's... It's like comparing a 30-second television commercial rate to outdoor. We don't do that. So why do we try and compare sponsorship to a television commercial? Mm. It's, it, they're completely different um, verticals with different pricing metrics and with different objectives too. I mean, you know, if I put my old marketing director hat on, you know, TV or digital had a very different role to what sponsorship does. Um, and I think, you know, that, that sort of starts to talk to strategic planning. But um, they do work differently and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be compared and we shouldn't try and grab one metrics from one channel and apply it to another one. It just doesn't make sense. You just said um, there's different strategic needs. Yeah. You know, if you're in a particular category, because there's a film out, Ford versus Ferrari, mm-hmm. you know, the whole idea that Ford want, you know, wanted to compete with Ferrari by actually being on the track, you know, to prove their, their credentials at Le Mans. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept because in marketing, it's the association, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. With that product that actually is part of why you sponsor it. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, you know, media equivalency doesn't work. What are the things that you should be thinking about when you are valuing a sponsorship deal? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's probably, I suppose the way that we think about it, you know, from a, and this is a probably a broader Gemba context, is, you know, purpose, planning and pricing of, First of all, why you're in it, you know, and they're they're quite often, you know, that's not necessarily a sexy process, but it it is interesting being really clear about why you're sponsoring something. Um, That then probably leads to planning about what you should buy Mm. and then pricing is, well, what do I pay for that? And I think to your point there, you know, depending on your brand objective, you know, and we we see this a lot, and again, if I put put my old um, hat back on with with the uh, Out of Our Skies, Sometimes we were in it because we needed to build credibility in a particular sport or address a particular technology issue that informed the specific athlete we had to sign. Mm. Um, other times we were just signing things because we wanted the licensing income and we didn't really care whether it was Team X or Team Y. It really came back to, well, how did the numbers It was part of out? the deal. It was part of the deal. Yeah. Um, you know, for, you know, and it's, so it feels like a lifetime ago now, but, you know, for Sydney Olympics, we had an issue around our technology credibility and we found a, a young swimmer called Ian Thorpe and we had this bodysuit technology and that became the whole focus. But the money was really invested in media to tell that story. Yeah. Because, you know, and again, and that sort of leads on probably one of the other great um, myths of the industry about leveraging ratios. There is no such thing as a leveraging ratio because that leveraging ratio might have been 100 to 1 because yeah. that's the strategic well, solution to it. So yeah. it's funny you know, that you say that because I've heard all sorts of numbers, you know, that uh, one-to-one is the sort of industry standard for every dollar, and this is yeah. leveraging ratios, for every dollar I've spent on the sponsorship, I have to spend another dollar leveraging it. Mm-hmm. I've heard up to three, but you've just told me that it could be 80-to-one or 100-to-one. 
And that's actually dependent on what you're trying to achieve, isn't it? It it is what it is. Because if it's going to take me $10 million to tell the story of that athlete, and that's the media buy, that's the ratio. Yeah. (laughs) And I think, you know, and and I'd actually quite often argue that you could argue it's the inverse, is that if we were helping a client structure a deal and maybe their objective was awareness of a new product or brand, so therefore they wanted to load more signage into the deal, you could argue that they could then spend less on paid media because actually the deal does a bit of that for them. So actually the ratio could drop. Mm. Yet the conventional wisdom would be, oh, the more you spend on the deal, the more you spend on leveraging. It just doesn't make sense. So I think to me, it's a lazy metric that the industry has fallen into. Um, and a rule of thumb. A, so yes, a rule of thumb. Yes. Two thumbs up for that one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or exactly, not. Exactly. So, so, you know, explain to me, because you've had de- um, decades yep. of working in a brand, working with brands, looking at uh, how they leverage sponsorships, yep. how they select sponsorships. What was the process that got you sitting there going, you know what, what the industry needs right now <laughs> yeah. is a more robust way of measuring value. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I'm going to follow up yep. that with, and how do you define value in sponsorships? Yeah. But, but take us on that process that got you there. Yeah, look, I think from a Gamba perspective, we were consistently getting brands coming to us saying, look, we're going to make a pretty big decision here. Um, and as, as you alluded to before, compared to most media buyers, these are big, big decisions. And... And quite often within organisations, maybe outside of investment in some capital or planned, an investment in sponsorship is probably one of the biggest checks they sign. You know, it's a three to five year deal, et cetera. And so we're getting brands come to us saying, look, we, we think we probably want to do this, but can you just help us sense check whether we're paying an appropriate amount? And, and again, if I put my old client hat back on, I mean, I didn't know what media rates were. That's what I used a media agency for because they have some aggregated knowledge around a cost per thousand on a, on a, on a digital buy, et cetera. So we started thinking that through, saying, okay, well, how would we help a client understand fair market value for, for, for a you know, pretty large investment? And initially, you know, that was mainly brands. And then I suppose after a while, what we found was that rights holders started coming to us saying, actually, we probably need to understand that as well because we've got to forecast our revenue going forward and we need to understand how we're generating value. So we sort of ended up in this really interesting position through you know, some intellectual capital we developed you know, in our consulting business that... We were getting brands and rights holders talking the same type of language, you know. Um, and then we looked at that and went, actually, well, there's a real interesting opportunity to productize that and make that global um, because increasingly these deals are becoming global. Mm. You know, you know, MBA is, you know, permeating across all these markets globally. So sponsorship is not sort of working, you know, at, just at a market level. And, and in fact, all of the big properties are global. You know, there's very there's very few, maybe in the US, you know, some but even then they talk about their football their national football being like yeah. a World Cup. Yeah. But still, you know, all of the World Cup, all the world events, uh, FIFA, uh, the ICC, um, rugby, you know, they're all playing to multiple markets. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, you, you look at so how many fans there are for, you know, Manchester City in, in China. That, that's, oh. a, that's, a, that's a big audience, you know, the big audience. Well, you so just go to any market and there's so much uh, knockoff stuff yeah. there for Manchester United. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting barometer, isn't it? The amount of fake licence products from the team. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, th- I think the, the opportunity that we saw was to start thinking around sort of, well, what does a global pricing system look like? Um, mm. 
uh, you know, and recognizing the fact that yeah, that, that things aren't just local anymore. And then yeah, as it, as it relates to value, or you know, in, in in this case, we're talking about pricing. We sort of isolated sort of three components of value, which work independently of each other. But one is the exposure value, and and you know, even though we've talked about the challenges of media frequencies. Exposure still is a really core part of sponsorship. Um, we price it more accurately to reflect actual sponsorship prices um, through using uh, um, some benchmarks around global signage rates and the like. There's things like then ticketing and hospitality and, and, and digital rights, which we classify as benefits. And then the piece that's probably the big point of difference for Turnstile is really trying to understand what the intellectual property value of these assets are because that's the piece really that quite often that someone wants to buy is the rights to associate with Olympic rings or an NFL logo. And yes, there's an exposure component to it quite often, but it's really the rights to associate with these global mega brands you know, that, that people are looking for. So we did a lot of work around trying to understand those three areas and particularly the intellectual property value. Uh, and what, what that's giving us is highly accurate price benchmarks. And, that, and that's a test for us. We didn't want to come up with another media equivalency number that have no connection we want to be close to the actual prices so for you value um as it's defined by the turnstile platform yeah is not just about exposure it's also the ip yeah and actually putting a number on that because ip is one of those interesting areas where people struggle with yeah you know we call it intellectual property which infers that it has a defined yeah um yeah existence yeah, yeah. but then people go well but how do i value that yeah you know, i know almost every creative industry for, in, for instance struggles with valuing intellectual property yeah it must have been a, a really fascinating yeah. challenge to overcome there was a lot of long late night conversations around it and, and it's interesting we went the full circle with with this and we were in the product development phase and I suppose we came back to this core principle and, and, you know, and it was sort of this touchstone that we, we kept on going back to through the product development phase was that, you know, why is Liverpool's intellectual property worth more than Fulham's? You know? mm. Why? Because there's more fans globally that care about Liverpool than Fulham. So we go, okay, so that's good. So we can have, we understand that. So that was one, one touchstone we looked at. And then the second one was we said, well, let's have a look at some of these global deals where no exposure is delivered. So Olympics deals is a really good example. Mm. A lot of NFL deals, um, there's no exposure in stadiums. They are purely the rights to associate with the rings or the NFL logo. So we could strip out the ticketing and hospitality and very quickly we could see a very clear, tangible part that was IP. Um, so people have always talked about intellectual property being an intangible. We're, we're really hot on saying, no, it's not an intangible. It's a very clear part of contracts that is IP value. And then if we start dividing that back into fan bases and say, okay, well, we can see that uh, a Formula One deal has X amount of IP in the deal and they are delivering 550 million fans to a, um, to a sponsor, we can get a cost per fan metric, essentially. There'd also be a variation when they're on this sort of passion of the fans, of it, yeah. which, which would, from a marketer's term, uh, relate to engagement. Yep. You know, there are some sports and teams that uh, drive even more passionate following than uh, than others. Absolutely, and I think, you know, and that's been the fascinating thing as we've been going through the product development exercise is we sort of have what we call assets and asset classes. So an asset class, we would say, for instance, is a team versus a league. And exactly to your point, with a team, the cost per fan is a lot higher because when you think about it, when you, when you sponsor a team, you're at the point of passion. That's where the tribalism is, that's where the emotion is. 
and brands will pay more for that. But similarly, a league may not have the passion, I may not barrack for the Premier League, but I get the benefit of being across all the teams in the league. Mm. So, so I get a higher reach, but perhaps that's slightly less engagement. So as we go into these new um, you know, so events, leagues, um, we're just launching into athletes now, which will be fascinating to understand what that looks like. We have to recognise there's actually different price benchmarks in all those different asset classes. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. Intuitively makes sense. It, you know, yeah. When you get down to individual a- athletes, you know, they're already getting uh, product endorsement deals that will vary based on someone's perceived value of yeah. that endorsement from that particular athlete. Yeah, I mean, why? I mean, reportedly, Roger Federer's deal is probably four and a half times Djokovic's deal. Yeah. Now, Djokovic is number one in the world at the moment. But Rogers built a global consumer equity that means that his deals might be going to be bigger than Djokovic's. It always amazed me because uh, the way you're talking about valuing IP reminds me of the way that a uh, conversation around valuing brands. Someone said that uh, they don't know why there's all these companies making it so complex. The way they, as an investor, look at brands is they uh, the value of the brand is that they look at the total capital value of the company from the the share market. They extract all of the value of the assets that it owns and everything else is the brand. Because he said brand reputation, same thing. What I'm banking on there is getting a valuation of future value, which is what a brand should do. It's an interesting approach, isn't it? And it's really important for the industry, for both both buyers and sellers, because I think from from a buyer perspective, a lot of the more mature brands don't necessarily want those exposure assets anymore. But they're looking for guidance and they're looking for comfort around what they're paying for a deal that doesn't deliver an exposure anymore but delivers the rights to associate. And on the sell side, the reality of exposure, you know, signage and ticket and hospitality is they're finite assets. You only sell them once. Whereas IP, if it's properly structured, you can actually get some quite incremental growth. And there's no cost of servicing against that either. It Mm. really is almost margin as well. So for both sides of the industry, it's really important that we we uncode this and get better at actually benchmarking IP. Now, Rob, uh, I just want to change track or an extension of what we're talking about. But, you know, we've seen in the last few years a fantastic focus on women's sport. And yet it's interesting because there's a lot of passion and there's a lot of enthusiasm. You know, we're seeing uh, the media are starting to cover women's sport with the same level of exposure and passion. But perhaps the numbers don't add up. How does it stack up? Have you had a chance to look at women versus men in particular yeah, it, sports? Yeah, it's been one of, the, one of the really interesting learnings we've had in the first 18 months um, around more accurately pricing women's sport. And, and, and I would say women's sport and also maybe other cause-related type issues like sustainability. Um, so that, you know, the, the two interesting ones for us are women's sport and Formula E at the moment. Um, right. two, two examples of that. But I think back to women's sport, I think, you know, we know that there's huge consumer sentiment for women's sport. I think there's, you know, people are really engaged and excited about the fact that there's women's leagues and teams going now. And we are seeing the corporate community move and invest quite heavily in, in that. Now, if you actually looked at the, the reach of a lot of those leagues and teams at the moment, it's still relatively small compared to men's. But what we haven't been able to identify before is this IP value again, is that there's huge followings for these leagues and teams that even though they're not necessarily getting it in broadcast at the moment, there's great sentiment behind it. So what we're finding is that, um, and it's interesting, when we talk to rights holders, got men's and women's assets and we present our results, 
a lot of our time has been spent on the women's side because they're really excited about the upside for it. And similarly, brands are going, right, get it. We're paying, we're paying for the ability to tell the story of women's sport, not necessarily just the eyeballs. Right, so, so from, just for me to get this straight, what you're saying is because of the passion and the engagement of the audience for women's sport, it's actually in real value, you know, more valuable uh, even though a smaller exposure. Yeah. So that what we're seeing with a deal mix is that we might see a typical, um, you know, let's say a, a women's, a men's league deal might have 50 to 60% of value in exposure, you know, maybe 30 to 40% in IP. Now, and that's a bigger number in absolute numbers, obviously. But the mix of the deal in a women's league will be more IP. Yeah. Because there's this great sentiment and this great sort of engagement with women's sport at the moment. So... Well, so, so hopefully um, this type of valuation, this type of assessment of value will start to drive that yep. to the point where, you know, they do get the same level of exposure, their exposure numbers go up, yep. who knows what's going to happen. I think so. And I think a, sim a similar example of Formula E, if you look at Formula E's numbers um, from an exposure perspective, it's still relatively low, but because it sits on this global sustainability platform of, you know, renewable energy, et cetera, there's great sentiment towards Formula E. So mm. if it was just being purely defined by eyeballs, it wouldn't be getting anywhere near the deals it's getting. But you look at the rush of the, you know, the manufacturers into that sport, you know, the Jaguars, the Mercedes, they're all in because they know they've got to be in this platform. Right. Yeah. It's the future of their business. It's the future it? of their business, yeah. yeah. So they are paying a premium for it. And that's in intellectual property value, not an exposure. Now, um, so you've mentioned that um, uh, turnstiles for both property owners, you know, the sports yep. um, uh, owners, and it's also for brands. Uh, let's focus on brands because that's where most of my time is yep. spent. What are the sorts of ways that they could work with Turnstile or use the platform yeah. to work for them? But a couple of ways. I think quite often we're getting a, a brand that's coming to us, you know, and they may be in a renewal phase or maybe in an acquisition phase and we'll get a brief to say, hey, look, you know, we're thinking of buying this type of package. We'd like you to come in and give us some um, benchmarks about what we should pay for that. So that's quite often on a one-off project basis. Um, we are starting now to get brands saying we'd like you to look at our whole portfolio. I think what, what tends to happen once we've done one job, the next question is, well, how does that compare to other things in our portfolio? Yeah. So there's a logical sort of, you know, this flow on. And then... And it, it is true, isn't it, that most brands, when they go into sports and entertainment, will end up with a portfolio. I don't know many brands that are just sponsoring one... Typically, yeah. ...product yeah, or one typically. property. They usually have a range of properties. A range of them, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the, the third the third sort of way we're working with our brand clients is there. We, we are, there's two parts of the offer. One is evaluation, but then we have a software components of that. So all that all that data that we've collected is then actually given to the client in a, in a software solution and they can then model and track that themselves as well. So that's sort of, it means that sort of that, that one-off piece of work stays live and stays relevant in the business, you know, for the, for the actual duration of the deal. It would be uh, incredibly valuable, wouldn't it, for marketers to be able to report a value of those deals back up to you know into the C-suite and even the board because a lot of sponsorships are, in my experience have actually come from board level yeah 
the boards. Yeah, often it's the board disproportionately that says, involved. Yeah, this is, <laughs> and, and in fact, I know a, a couple of sponsorship managers that go, it's always difficult when a property owner phones up and says, I was talking to such and such on the board, yeah. and they said, you should be sponsoring us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, I think it's becoming less prevalent, but I'm not denying it doesn't happen still. Um, no, well, I, I, I will, I won't mention the name, but I know a beer company yeah. that was into the fine arts. Right. And I'm not sure that they were either serving a lot of the product <laughs> at those events or consuming a lot of, pro- of that product. And in fact, I, I wouldn't say many of the people that attend or support right. the fine arts yeah. were actually heavily into these particular brands of beer. But who knows? Yeah, you know? it feels tenuous. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's no. not for I to judge yeah, exactly. how other people invest their shareholders' money. Exactly. <laughs> Let's not start on that one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think... And look, a lot of our thinking is unashamedly, you know, um, mimicking what happens in the media industry, you know. And, and I think if you if you think about you've made an investment, you want to track it, you know. And it's, it's, it's like getting your media evaluation report after you've, you've, you've bought a campaign. So our, our sort of thought is that, yes, once we've bought it, that's great. And we've got, got a good, hopefully giving the client a good sort of sense check that they're paying an appropriate price. But then we should look at the metrics that are underpinning that and make sure it's actually been delivered. Um and I think the other thing, and it's probably one of one of the other areas that we think the industry is going to shift to is, and we're starting to see this with a couple of clients now, is that if you think about sponsorship, one of its challenges is you lock into a three or four year commitment, but we know the needs of our brands are quite often moving and changing within that three to four mm. years. You know, and one of the premises that we're working on is that if we can get a, a sort of a joint commitment between the rights holder and the brand about an investment number over that period, and an agreement on what our what the IP is worth in that deal. We should better swap and change the rights out a little bit. So you know, one year, uh, you know, a, a soft drink manufacturer it might be all about recruitment. You know, and they want you know certain assets that drive recruitment, and that might be around sort of you know maybe more exposure assets. The next year, it could be about driving incident rates, where they want the same drinkers to drink it more often. It might be more digital rights that do that. Mm. So if you think about it as an industry, what we should be trying to do is actually have the flexibility to change things and change things out. And if we have agreed pricing metrics, we can then actually do that a lot easier as well. It becomes a lot easier process to execute. Now, what I am surprised at is because, you know, anytime someone comes along and says, we're going to benchmark the value here, mm. uh, there's usually a group of people that go, oh, no, you know, it's mm. like uh, the, the devil has just walked into the room. Mm. Um, and yet you've said that the rights owners, the property owners, have actually embraced this methodology. Yeah, some, 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 <laughs> but, but even that. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. It, it's a bit like um, you know, uh, media and creative agencies going. Yes, we're happy to be benchmarked on yeah. what we're charging. Look, I think there's just a realization from the more sophisticated rights holders in the industry that the industry has to change. You know, and I think when we get to the a client who's got that attitude, they very quickly get what we're trying to do because we're not trying to commoditize the offer and if anything we're actually finding different pockets of value for both buyers and sellers but if the industry doesn't evolve and become more rigorous in its metrics it's going to lose its share to other channels and i think a really good example that was a rights holder recently the premier league team in london said to me they said look we're actually not competing necessarily against the other top five premier league teams probably Google and Facebook's a bigger competitor for us because mm. they can profile a football fan, they can profile my particular team, and that brand that I'm talking to can probably go and do a three- to four-week digital buy with them 
and then be in and out of it. That's that's an incredibly enlightened person who realizes that the competition is not the other sponsorships, but all you know, you're competing for the marketer's budget. That's right. So then, when we go and talk to them about you know more sophistication, more rigor around metrics, they're going, well, that's what we're competing against. Because, you know, look, and, you know, as you well know, digital has got its own measurement challenges at yeah, times. Yeah, However, course. it's a long way in front of where sponsorship's at at the moment. Mm. So, you know, I think if you're a CMO and you're sitting looking at a whole channel mix and, you know, the, the most risky one at the moment quite often is sponsorship. You know, so what we're trying to do is is bring some more, you know, uh, comfort around that investment decision for buyers and sellers. I just had a thought that it's going to be uh, also helpful for CMOs who are in organisations where sponsorship is actually sitting over with corporate affairs. Because, you know, that's where it becomes bizarre from my perspective that um, uh, sponsorship is being decided on the basis of not any sort of, you know, building the brand profile or even driving sales, but it's purely a a reputational yeah. perspective, yeah. Uh, this would help bring some measure to that. Yeah, it? absolutely, absolutely. And I think, and interestingly too, we're getting increasingly um, procurement departments within brands talking to us as well because quite often they're being charged with you know, reviewing you know, media expenditure, for instance. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, again, the big ticket items are actually in these sponsorship deals. And I had a really bizarre meeting in Shanghai when I was living there of, I went to a meeting with a, a very major Chinese um, FMCG business and meeting with their procurement department, and I thought we were going through the procurement process, um, which is a reflection on my very low levels of how um, speak Chinese. But halfway through the meeting, I realised that what had actually happened was that the procurement department had been told that they needed to buy all sport and entertainment assets in the business because what someone identified as the biggest risk for fraud was sport and entertainment investments because you could easily hide a lot of money in these deals and no one would know. Whereas with media, you know, there's pretty clear benchmarks on, you know, cost per engagement, cost per click, cost per thousand, you know, rating points, et cetera, that that would stand out reasonably quickly. But in a sponsorship deal, no. you could easily hide something. So, you know, it's interesting. We are starting to get procurement saying, you know, we need assistance in that because although they're... they're responsible for that, they don't necessarily have the benchmarks and the metrics to actually be able to make assessments around sponsorship. Well, and the other uh, benefit, because, you know, uh, Gemba's been 15 years. Yep. Uh, You've been working on this project for four years. Yep, yep. Um, But really only launched it two years ago. Two years ago, Is that fair? Yeah, yep. It'll be interesting to have this conversation, let's say, in three years' time. Uh, to see whether it's also made those relationships between brands and rights holders more enduring and more yeah. longer term, because that's one of the things that people often overlook. Yeah, is that adding accountability, adding a you know agreed measurability to the relationship actually can extend because it eliminates all those questions of well, am I getting the right value? Are you really delivering on what you promised? Yeah, and I think... Are you seeing it already? Well, we've seen it in Gamba using that approach and the consultancy approach is that, you know, a lot of these relationships that we've been, you know, benchmarking for five, you know, 10, 15 years are enduring. And it's, look, sure, there's been times where the rights holder wanted more money, but quite often my counter is, hey, that sponsor's still with you 15 years later. Mm. Yeah, the cost of finding somebody else and, you know, so I think... um, so we've seen that on, on, the, on the Gamba consultancy side and we are already starting to see it on the turnstile side. So we've we've done two projects now where 
both the rights holder and the buyer has engaged us. You know, we've been very upfront with both parties that we've been engaged by both parties. And the CEO of one of those um, clubs actually, uh, I caught up with him in London recently, and he said, look, yeah, we didn't agree with everything you, you, you said, but we agreed with 90% of it. But it meant that when we sat down with the sponsor, we were arguing over 10% of the deal now, and very quickly we were having a bigger partnership conversation mm. rather than hackling over the details. So, yeah, as I say, I think you, you, you'd be seeing it in, in other parts, industry and media, so I don't think this is rocket science. Um, and I think that's probably one of the, you know, the nice benefits of the, of the process. Well, I think uh, the biggest challenge that media has, and, and they're really struggling to come to terms, is to find a unified measure of value yeah. across all the multiple channels. You, know, you mentioned that digital has its own challenges, but to be able to then measure across the various channels and have a single metric yeah. uh, is the nirvana for, uh, for yeah. media buying. Yeah. Uh, it's still a long way off. I know uh, the ANA and WFA and a couple of the big organisations have, um, have started working and trying to pull people together to solve that problem. Are you getting the same sort of support here with the, the big... Because a lot of the, the sponsorship rights owners are parts or are big uh, associate sporting yeah, associations. Yeah, we, we, we're probably tackling... I mean, we, we have the same, you know, uh, challenge as a subset of, of, of our, you know, sponsorship channel. I think one of the things that we were very sort of focused on in the product development phase is that we needed a, a media agnostic measurement tool because, you know, the challenge is that, you know, if you think about 15 years ago, most value was created by traditional broadcast. Now we have OTT services, you know, we have a lot of stuff going through yeah. social. So what we've been doing as we've been measuring or developing our exposure measurement approach is making sure that that is agnostic of channel. So yeah. essentially we have got a sort of per second per fan rate that runs across all those channels. So it means that you can start having realistic comparisons between the social media value and the broadcast. Mm. And what it actually is doing, and, and it's been, we've had some fascinating conversations with clients around it is, is it's it is actually in some ways reinforcing still the value of you know traditional media which isn't necessarily always the, the sexy thing to talk about but if someone's sitting down watching a big screen for two hours they're getting a lot of content as opposed to snacking on 15 seconds of a instagram post or a you know a twitter feed so i think what it has done is it's perhaps in some cases appropriately positioned where social's role is and social is really important it's a great engagement tool but the big numbers are still coming out of OTT, traditional broadcast, mm. and pay TV, you know. So, and that's been quite um, interesting to sort of see clients' reaction to that as well. The world has changed, hasn't it? Because the idea of these being um, sort of events where people came together to share is now, you know, technology allows you to participate in the sports that you're passionate about, yeah. the entertainment that you're passionate about when it suits you. Yep. And yep. we have to be able to, any measurement system, like Turnstile, has to be able to accommodate that. Yeah, and the thing that we're now starting to work on is that, you know, in a sports context, that also extends into gaming, you know. So when I when I play Formula One or NBA 2K, I see all the same sponsor integration that I see in traditional mm. broadcast. You know, if you, and Formula One's a great example of, you know, the the actual whole experience from the intro to the commentary to the, to, yeah. to the way it's set up is exactly like the broadcast. And all the signage exposed is exactly the same. So if you think about the dwell time, the amount of time people are gaming um, and the engagement Exposure rate, and, the engagement, and, again, yeah. and that's things that we, as an industry, we haven't properly quantified, you know. Mm. So, you know, again, we need to go and be talking to the, you know, the, the console providers and understanding and trying to get more data out of them because 
there's a lot of value that brands will start seeing if they can understand that gaming piece. And one of sports, you know, challenges globally is it's aging, you know. So there's probably a demographic of 15 to 25 to 30 year olds that will over index with gaming that also makes the whole proposition of sponsorship stronger as well. Mm. Uh, Rob, it's been terrific catching up and having a chat. We've run out of time. Um, but uh, look, congratulations on uh, Turnstile and uh, looking forward to seeing some great results coming out of this. Uh, but a, a question um, from all your experience, what's the worst case scenario that you've seen when people have been choosing sponsorships? Thank you.